Thanks for listening to the weekly teaching podcast for City Church in Knoxville, Tennessee. It is our desire to be a Jesus-centered family on mission. If you live here in Knoxville or are ever visiting the area, we'd love to have you with us at one of our Sunday gatherings. You can find out more at citychurchknox.com. If you're interested in giving financially to help us reach more people in our city, you can give easily at citychurchknox.com give. And finally, if this teaching is helpful to you in any way, we'd love to hear about it. You can email us at info at citychurchknox.com. With that being said, here's this week's teaching. It's great to see all of you. Um, just as a quick reminder, we are in our series going through the life of David and going through different snapshots of his life um, that we see throughout, throughout Scripture and, and taking things out of that that we feel like we can apply to our lives today. So go ahead and turn to 2 Samuel chapter 12. We are going to be there for the bulk of our time today, and if you want to go ahead and like put a bookmark or a finger or something and Psalm 51, we're going to end up there a little bit later. But 2 Samuel 12 is where we're going to start. Um, so while you're getting there, uh, I just want to recap a little bit of what we talked about last week to set us up for where uh, we are today. So David's armies are out uh, fighting a war, and David is supposed to be with them. The king of his armies is supposed to be with his armies when they're fighting. Uh, but instead, he is at home, and he is shirking his responsibilities. Um, so while he is somewhere that he is not supposed to be, David, uh, he sees Bathsheba doing something that she is supposed to be doing, exactly what she's supposed to be doing, where she is supposed to be doing it, at her own home. And we saw uh, just some horrible consequences of, of what happens when David uses his power uh, to force himself on her and then murder her husband uh, in an attempt to cover it all up. Um, and as Jeff mentioned last week, I want to reiterate this. Our reaction uh, to David's sin and David's mistakes, those are, are a big deal, but our reaction should not be that we just shake our heads and, and self-righteous disgust or, or think, how dare he, right? I would never. No, the point of this is to remember David is the best of us. That's, that was the, the point of all of this. David is a man after God's own heart. David is the one who fought and killed Goliath when no one else was willing to step up. David was the guy who was on the run when Saul was trying to kill him, and he, he had the opportunity to retaliate against Saul to kill him into all of his problems, and he didn't. Right? He continued to show forgiveness over and over and trust God again and again in the midst of all of these incredibly difficult circumstances. Over and over again, we see examples of David being the best of us, putting this on display, and then he falls into this terrible, terrible sin, right? And that, that should strike us, right? Because if it could happen to David, the David, right, it could happen to any of us. Uh, so for the original readers of these stories, and for us, once we get to the end of the story that we covered last week, um, this should make us think, well, what, what now? Like, that doesn't sound like a a thing that we should be emulating or doing. So what now? David was supposed to be the guy. He was the one that we're counting on. And he blew it. Right? So we're going to see what happens next. So go ahead and look at 2 Samuel chapter 12. We're going to start in verse 1. So the Lord sent Nathan to David. Right? The Lord sent Nathan. Um, so Nathan was a prophet at the time. We talked a little bit 
uh, about what prophets were and what they did and kind of their function in Jewish culture. But as a quick reminder, they had a direct line to God, more or less. And they would communicate with the Israelites and the leaders of the Israelites uh, the things that God commanded of them or the things that, that God would have them do. So Nathan was, was like David's prophetic counterpart at the time. And then he shows up after we read about one of the biggest moral failures in the Bible and in David's life. And so, like we said, David has just been a part of some heinous things. He has turned his back on God in an act of outright rebellion. And he really needs to get a grip on reality, right? He needs to see and understand the gravity of what has just happened. He needs to repent. He needs to acknowledge his sin. He needs to turn his heart back to God. But we don't see that sequence of events in Scripture up until this point. Right? We don't see David commit these horrible, horrible things and then mourn over his sin and his brokenness. That's not his next response. He's not filled with remorse from what we can see. We see David commit all of these things, and then the next thing we see is Nathan show up. So let's keep reading. So when he came to him, this is Nathan coming to David, he said, There were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb he had bought. He raised it, and it grew up with him and his children. It shared his food, drank from his cup, and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. So keep in mind, this was an agrarian society, right? So in general, most people are farmers or farming in some capacity. They're very familiar with it. And even though this is a fundamental part of life uh, for all of these people, the way this guy in the story feels about his livestock is, is pretty intense, right? It says he treats a lamb like his daughter. So I, I'm sure we've all heard somebody talk about like their pets as their babies, right? Uh, that's all good and well, especially for millennials. We all know that uh, uh, pets are the new, or plants are the new pets, pets are the new kids, right? Um, but when someone talks about their animal like this, talks about sharing a plate, sharing a cup with this animal, and saying it is the same as one of their children, most of us can agree that that'd be kind of concerning if somebody said that to us. This is, a, this is an intense bond. All right, so let's look in verse 4. <clears throat> the story continues. It says, Now, a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. So he took the lamb that belonged to the poor man. The lamb that was so precious to him that it was like his child, right? He went and he stole it, blatantly took something that was not his, right? The lamb had no say in this matter. And the, the, Hebrew, the Hebrew word here is uh, lakak, it means to, to take. It's the same word used the chapter before uh, when it tells us what David did to Bathsheba, the exact same word. And Nathan is trying to use this story to illustrate an injustice being done. Right? He's illustrating this injustice of stealing this lamb. He's trying to do this to spark David's conscience. He's describing this rich man uh, who has everything that he needs. He has more than he needs, even. But he goes out of his way to violently steal from 
another person. Right? He, didn't, he didn't like coerce the lamb. He didn't wine and dine the lamb. None of these things. The lamb had no say in this. Right? It was stolen, just like Bathsheba. And it looks like Nathan's strategy is working. Right? Look at verse 5. We're going to keep reading. It says, David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, as surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. So David is shook at this story, right? Talk about a big reaction, arguably too big of a reaction if we're talking about this particular story. Right? David says, in this order, kill him, also pay him back after, after that. Right? I imagine Nathan is pretty surprised. He tells this story, and David's like, kill him now. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. He's probably thinking, like, turns out this meeting's going to be a lot faster than I thought. Uh, that's a big reaction. Right? Even looking at Levitical law at the time that has some pretty extreme consequences for things, this kind of situation would not have been punishable by death in Levitical law. But David is so enraged at this injustice that's done that he says, we should just, we should just kill the guy in the story. It's the only option. But he still doesn't connect the dots yet. Right? He is blinded by his own sin, blinded by the choices that he has made in the situation that he's in. He does not understand the full picture of what's going on yet. And so this is the beginning, this moment is the beginning of what, what we can call uh, kind of David's consciousness waking up. His conscience is waking up. He's, he's being reminded of what justice and injustice look like in a similar situation to what he has found himself in. And we can see he understands the concept, right? He is all about this concept of justice. He gets the idea, but there is still a disconnect between what he knows to be true at a heart level and the choices that he has decided to make. Right? There's a disconnect between those things. And so for Nathan, he comes in here, he's probably expecting like 100 mile an hour fastball he has to swing at, tells this story, and it's like, well, it looks like this is T-ball, actually. Like, we're just going to, David is into this story. All I got to do is swing, right? So verse 7, Nathan said to David, you are the man. This is an ancient episode of Maury, right? You are the father. No. Um, that's what it made me think of. <clears throat> Chasing him backstage with the camera. Uh, okay. Don't watch it if you haven't. It's a terrible show. <clears throat> but Nathan, Nathan is talking to David. And when Nathan speaks at the time, God has sent him. This is basically like the words of God to David. Nathan is just a vessel for communication. And he is pointing the finger straight at David. Keep reading to see what Nathan says. He said, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave your master's house to you and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you all Israel and Judah. And if all this had been too little, I would have given you even more. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. 
Now, therefore, the sword will never depart from your house because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. So Nathan is bringing the heat, right? He is tearing David a new one, and rightly so, right? David has committed some horrific things through his sin, and they have incredibly damaging effects. And he is seemingly just continuing on with his life. But he needed a wake-up call, and he needed it fast. And I think this passage has, has a couple things that we can take away uh, in our lives today. So the first thing uh, is, is that we all need Nathans in our life. We all need Nathans. We have a couple here this morning if you want to find one of them. Nathan Bingham loves large groups of people talking to him at once. <coughs> I asked. He said I could say it. Don't do that, please. So we all need Nathans in our life. So really what David needed was repentance, right? David needed repentance. That was the end goal. But Nathan was the means by which he got there. Nathan was the means by which David reached repentance. Nathan was a grace gift to David. So David was blind to his sin. He couldn't even get to repentance because he couldn't even see in the first place. David needed someone to to call him out on his sin, needed to bring his sin to his attention to highlight the mess that he got himself into. And God put this calling on Nathan's heart to do that. Remember in verse 1 it said, the Lord sent Nathan to David. We don't know what Nathan was doing before this, Right? But we do know that when God put this on his heart, he listened. Right? He obeyed this calling that God put on his heart. He put his reputation, his safety, all of these things on the line to call out David's sin. Right? Going around and pointing fingers at kings, calling them murderers, is pretty dangerous work. But Nathan was faithful. Right? And because... Nathan did not ignore the call that God put on his heart. He didn't just sit back and think, you know what, David is probably going to be fine, right? It's none of my business. I wasn't there. I'll just let David, David do his thing. He didn't do that. And because he didn't, he was able to show David where he was off. He was able to help move David to repentance, and so if you're, if you're in here today or you're listening today uh, and you're thinking about how I don't, self-aware you are, uh, that you know yourself better than anybody, right? You don't really have blind spots. Um, I'm here to let you know you do indeed have blind spots. That very well could be one of them, in fact. You're welcome. That one was free. Uh, but we all have blind spots, everyone. And, and I think it's really interesting, in, in Hebrews, the author um, talks about some of this uh, pretty well. I like it. Hebrews 3.13 says this. It says, encourage one another daily, as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. None of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. So we are all susceptible to deceitfulness from sin. We are all susceptible to it. No one is the exception. 
We have all been deceived in one way or another by our own sin. And we all need people in our lives who are able to see those blind spots. How often does it say in Hebrews? Daily. Daily. I love how he adds the clarifier, as long as it's called today, right? Or people today may say something like, oh, it's only on the days that end with Y, right? Every day we need these people. And it's important to recognize the way that Nathan engages David. He doesn't just come in and say like, hey, I heard from God, you messed up, you dummy, right? He doesn't just come in and hit him with something and then leave that's all impersonal. He, he engages David, but he does it in a way that seems incredibly effective, right? He tells him a story in a way that he knows David will hear it. He tells him a story in a way that he knows David will receive the point of what he's saying. And, and the only way that he is going to be able to do this, the only way that he knew to do this so effectively, one, is because God helped stir those things in his heart. And because Nathan was listening to what God was stirring, he was able to respond. But second, it seems like on some level, he, he knows David well enough personally to know how to engage him well. Right? He, he knows the way that David is going to hear and receive what he is trying to communicate. And the only way that you and I are going to be able to have Nathans like this in our life is if we have deep, committed, connected friendships with people who love Jesus and people who are able to see your life regularly and up close. That is the only way that this is going to be possible. I like how Tim Keller put it. Um, he said, your only hope for growth is if you deputize people in your life. Your only hope for growth is if you deputize people. If you have people in your life that, that you have given the authority to speak into any and every part of your life, you have given them complete authority. People who will come to you and say, hey, I love you, and I know you love Jesus, and the Bible says you have blind spots, and here is where I see some. Right? I want you to know because you might not be aware, and I want you to grow to look more like Jesus. That's the kind of people that we need in our life. And in these situations, we don't just say, you know what, I'm out. I'm out of here. I don't have time for this. All right? We don't get defensive. And if we do, we get to repent of that too. Right? We, we're not going to be devastated and crushed that anyone would ever say those things about us. No, we're not going to get mad. We're going to make it safe for people to see and address our flaws, to talk to us about those things. And it's something that we intentionally invite people into. Like Tim Keller said, that we deputize People. And if you're thinking that you don't have those types of people in your life, you don't have people who are able to do that, who are willing to do that, it could be that you haven't actually deputized people in this way. Those people may be around you but not feel like that they can do that because you haven't communicated to them that, that you want them to. You may not have granted people this kind of access to your life. Right? People who can see your day-to-day -day life up close your real life, right? The good, the bad, all of it. And they can call you out on sin and blind spots because they see them. 
And if I may be so bold, uh, I have a feeling that some of us might have tensed up a little bit up until this point, just thinking about all of this. So let's take a deep breath and let it out. Maybe just me feeling tense about all of this. Uh, So that's for me more than it's for anyone else. But I think part of the reason that this feels weird or this feels off to us um, is I feel like we don't have much of a category in our culture at large for healthy confrontation, right? Generally, not all the time, but generally when we see people call out someone in our culture today, uh, whether it's accurate or not, it is usually intended to hurt them or their platform, right? That is generally what it's for, not for building them up. Or maybe if you've been around uh, religious circles for a while, you may have seen examples of this uh, within some of those circles, right? You may have seen some, some church leaders or, or pastors at times with a self-righteous agenda go around condemning people uh, and doing a whole lot of damage in the process with no intention of people growing in repentance or reconciliation or any of those things. We may have seen some of the damage that that has caused. And that, that has caused a lot of us, I feel like, to have or to not have a category for healthy biblical confrontation like we're called to. But listen, if we, if we don't have this understanding that this is something that we need in our lives, then we are always going to be blinded by sin. Always. And we're never going to actually grow Right? If, if your sin is left unchecked and alone and inaccessible to anyone to talk to you about it, it will be like a cancer for your soul, right? like a toxic mold just left alone in the dark to grow and slowly suffocate you spiritually. And we don't want that, right? And, and if you do feel like you have plenty of people who are, who are like Nathan in your life, who regularly see and speak into your life, praise God for that. I love that. And you should encourage those people and thank them and thank God for it. But I also want us to think about, really think about how many of those people actually disagree with you at any point. Right? Because if we're only completely vulnerable with people who exclusively pat you on the back and be like, yeah, whatever you say. I'm on board with that, right? That's not really a Nathan. Right? It's more of a cheerleader, right? And that's great for my ego, and it's terrible for my soul. It really is. So look, look at the screen uh, at what Proverb, the author of Proverbs says uh, in Proverbs 27, just about this, this whole idea. It says, wounds from a friend can be trusted, but an enemy multiplies kisses. Wounds from a friend can be trusted. So a scalpel, if you, if you can imagine with me a scalpel uh, and an axe, both cut. They are both capable of cutting, right? But in the right hands, with the right motivation, the wounds from a scalpel can ultimately bring healing and growth, not destruction, not harm. The wounds from a friend are not just meant to hurt you. That's not the goal. It's not the intent, but to help you grow. That does not mean that they won't ever hurt. That is not what that means. But we need to have this 
attitude. We need to understand that these kinds of relationships are necessary for us to grow. Necessary for us to grow in our relationship with Jesus and grow in maturity. And we should be actively seeking these relationships out with humility. Because if we don't, we will both not grow and be deeply offended whenever it does happen. And neither one of those things will help us be more like Jesus. So there was a, a theologian back in the day who, who talked about this idea, um, and I'll put the quote up on the screen. He said, you know how when you strike something soft, it makes no noise. But if you strike a hard thing, it makes a noise. So with the hearts of men who are full of themselves and hardened with self-love, if they receive a stroke, they make a noise. But a self-denying Christian yields to God's hand and makes no noise. So I love this analogy. Uh, and I think it's true, right? The Christian who is hardened by self-righteousness will just make noise, is what it says, when confronted, right? The whole world around them will know that you confronted them well before they know that they've repented of anything, right? I imagine with me, David, as a 2022 uh, self-righteous Christian. Just imagine. It's not, but imagine with me. Uh, Nathan comes in to confront him. I think he could have responded in a variety of different ways. And I think we can break into some categories that you may have seen or you may have heard about or you may have been a part of. I know I have. Um, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to break a few of these down for us. So he could have turned to minimizing, is what we would call it, trying to play things down. Like it's not significant. Right? Come on, it wasn't that big of a deal. It could have been a lot worse, if we're being honest. I, I think you're being too sensitive, Nathan. Come on, it's not that big of a deal. Or he could have turned to maximizing, which is an interesting one, to, to switch it up and, and use it as an opportunity to become the center of attention. Oh, woe is me, I'm the worst. Right, everyone, come and look. Or woe is me, you're the worst. Worst person I've ever met. I'm totally unlovable. Or just like... Fishing for praise and affirmation to avoid honesty and repentance. Or maybe they could turn to blame shifting, right? Sometimes this comes out as victimization, or we can call it a few different things, but this is the response like, you know, it's not my fault, right? I've been, I've been hurt a lot before, and that's just, just how I responded. You don't understand what kind of pressure I'm under. Right? My life is exhausting and stressful. You wouldn't get it. You know, what was I supposed to do? You don't know what it's like to be in my position. Or maybe lashing out, right? Just getting super angry. Right? You're just out to get me. You're not a real friend. Right? You don't support me. You're not a safe person in my life anymore. How, would you, how dare you say something like that to me? Or maybe redirecting. Right? The good old Uno reverse, right? You know, while we're talking about sin, uh, you got a couple things in your life. I don't think you have much room to talk. Right? Mr. Sinner yourself. You're terrible at this other thing, and you and I both know it. Right? And as with any kind of litmus test that we do up here, on Sundays. The, the goal of, of these categories is, is to help you identify ways that you might be off in your heart posture, 
right? This is not for you to use as a weapon against other people. But as followers of Jesus, we shouldn't be responding in those ways. We probably do at some point. I know that I have. But a self-denying, mature Christian yields to God, even when, they speak, when he speaks through other people. Right? And the closer the view a follower of Jesus has in your life, the more you should pay attention to what they say. Right? The closer view they have, the more you should be listening. Right? People, people in your life group who see you multiple times a week, or your roommates, if they're followers of Jesus, these people have a window into your life, into your real life. And if they confront you and correct you, and the things that they say should have a lot more influence in your life than a person that you just happen to call to vent to one day, once or twice a month that doesn't know you or doesn't see your life day to day. Now, does that mean you should never talk to anyone who's not in your life group? No, of course not. But in general, the people who see your life up close, they're the ones that have the best source of information about your life. So, like I said, I want to be the first to say, this is something I struggle with sometimes. Um, a lot of times. Not sometimes. It's too much credit. Um, my sinful tendency, or one of my sinful tendencies, uh, is to take someone disagreeing with me as a personal affront, right? Or, or I take confrontation as criticism, and I immediately have this desire just well up inside of me to make excuses or defend myself instead of listening with humility. This is something that I do. Not too long ago, uh, my wife, Sarah, called me out on being too attached to my phone. And by not that long ago, I mean mm, very often. This happens a lot. <clears throat> but it also happened a while ago. So I'll use that as an example. Uh, she said I was always on it, right? I was ignoring other things. And my first response was, what? I'm sorry? <clears throat> no. Uh, I was like, me? On my phone too much? I was on my phone because you were on your phone. I was just waiting for you to put yours down, right? Or it's like, well, Marcus or Kent or Jeff might be texting me. Right? I don't want to miss something. I'll put it away. I won't know what's going on. I'm like, don't you know how important I am? Come on. <clears throat> I couldn't believe that she would say something like that. Something so false. <laughs> but the more I thought about it, like the, mo the more I realized not only was she right, but it was so much bigger than just being on my phone at home sometimes. Right? First thing in the morning, scrolling. Last thing at night, scrolling. Sitting down to, to dinner and having a conversation? Nope. Instagram for sure, right? Sitting in life group and I'm not actively talking or sharing, probably should check my phone, right? Sure would love to be scrolling. <laughs> and hanging out with a group of people sometimes. Other people are talking about something, don't really like that topic, phone, immediately, right? And I began to realize how much of a problem it was Right? And instead of spending intentional time with my wife, I'm on my phone ignoring her. Instead of having conversations with and, and engaging with people in a, in a group, shutting them out, right? not showing them any hospitality at all. 
because I cared more about what was on my phone than what was happening in their life. Right? Instead of being engaged with people who were sharing something about their life in life group, I was communicating, I care a whole lot more about Instagram than I do about whatever is going on with you. Right? So instead of all of the excuses and the defensiveness and, and the redirection that I was trying to, to do, I should be thanking her for seeing those things. And not only seeing them, but bringing them to my attention over and over and over <laughs> because it's something that I struggle with. Right? But our response to confrontation should not be anger and defensiveness and all of these things. It should be humility and gratefulness. So this, this next point will be quicker, but the second thing that we want to take away, if it hasn't become clear yet, is that we can all be Nathans. We can all be Nathans. Because in order for any of us to have Nathans in our life, we also need to be that for others. Right? Part of living in relationship with other followers of Jesus or part of you being a follower of Jesus is living in relationship with other followers of Jesus and taking responsibility for their spiritual walk. In our relationships with other followers of Jesus, we should be looking for opportunities to point people towards Jesus more and more. Sometimes that means encouraging people in the growth that you've seen in their life. Right? Encourage them in the progress that they're making. Because a lot of times it's hard to see that in your own life. And sometimes that means bringing their attention to an area of life where they may not be aligned with Scripture. Even when it's uncomfortable. Right? Even when it's easier or a lot more fun to join in with whatever they're doing. And listen, I will be the first to say Again, it is not most people's preference to be confronted or to bring confrontation to others in a way that is to help them grow. But our preferences do not take precedence over Scripture. They just don't. Right? We might think, I ah, just, I want them to know that they're accepted, which is good, but acceptance is not the core to biblical community, right? Following Christ together is. Following Christ is the core of biblical community. And when we refuse to accept or to acknowledge confrontation or we refuse to engage someone else in their sin because it feels unpleasant or because it's easier to just talk to other people about it, we are elevating our preferences over Jesus in our lives. Right? And in the same way, like I just said, our confrontation should never come from a place of personal preference, right? Our confrontation doesn't come from our personal frustrations with people. Confrontation is done through Scripture, through the truth of God's Word, not our opinions, right? Your confrontation should never be determined by your mood, right? That is not biblical confrontation. That's complaining. Those are different that is not for the purpose of building one another up and pushing each other towards Jesus. That's for tearing people down. That's for creating division. We don't, we don't do that because that's not what Scripture teaches. That's not to help people grow to be more like Jesus. 
And with all of this, we, we have to remember healthy confrontation is great, but healthy confrontation is not the end goal. Right? Confrontation is not the end goal. Confrontation is a success when we are moved towards repentance. That is the goal. Repentance is always the goal. Confrontation is not to just make people grieve their sin and recognize it. That's part of it. Absolutely. That is a huge component. But that's only half. The second half is, is that we are moved towards repentance, to change our life by God's grace and the power of the Spirit at work in your life to walk more closely in step with Jesus. That's the goal. It's easy to grieve sin, right? but it cannot stop there. It just can't. So when we receive confrontation or correction in our sin, we need to understand that that might be a blind spot that we don't see. Or maybe it's something we do see and we just hope no one else did. Right? We shouldn't respond in those ways that we talked about earlier with defensiveness or anger or any of those things. We should thank people. We should thank other followers of Jesus for doing this in our lives. We should, we should thank the Lord for putting those people in our lives in the first place. Or for, or for putting us in a situation where we can point someone else back to Jesus. And this is something that I want us to do this week in our life groups. Right? I want us to try to put this into practice. To open ourselves up. Open ourselves up to others. Invite them to speak and to blind spots in our lives. Or to engage someone else. Right? And this feels like the week where everybody's got plans now, right? Can't make it a live group. <laughs> I have dinner right now. Um, it, this is absolutely necessary. And I want to invite everyone to push back against the desire that you may have to hide from that. And this is something I have to say to myself as much as I say it to anyone else. Right? I want to invite you into something that is so much bigger and better than your comfort in the moment. So much better. And I want to wrap up today just by taking a look at David's response this whole situation. So Nathan took a big risk, right, with this confrontation. I'm sure he knew that God was with him and, and sustaining him and leading him, but also, at the same time, I don't know if you've ever seen, like, movies or read books where kings were called out on something, uh, but it's very, like, off with your head, generally. This was a big risk for Nathan. And David could have responded like that. He could have responded in any number of ways. We saw just a chapter earlier, he's very capable of doing that. Anger and violence, just to name a few of his potential responses. But what does David do? We look back at 2 Samuel 12, this time in verse 13. It says, Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. I have sinned against the Lord. So this is David's wake-up moment. Right? He, he finally wakes up from this downward spiral of destruction and sin that he has been in. This is his light bulb moment, right? 
I have sinned against the Lord. He, he wakes up from his unreality of sin that he has been living in for so long. And, and the text goes on to say, David spends the next week praying and fasting before God. A week in response to this. And we know that David followed through on this confrontation that he received. He followed through and, and walked in repentance. And we, and we know that um, from examples from the rest of his life, but also through examples in the Psalms. And, and in response to this situation, Psalm 51 was written. David wrote Psalm 51. And it's an example of the whole process and the end goal. Psalm 51 is a snapshot of what David prayed over that week when he was fasting and mourning. This prayer is how David processes through his sin, through the reality of what has happened. And it's a beautiful picture of repentance. Right? And this, this is how we ought to be responding when we're confronted, or when we're corrected. Repentance and restoration. So what I want to do uh, as, we, as we get ready to end things, I just want to read Psalm 51 over us. Um, and it's going to be on the screen here in a second, and you can read it along on the screen or in your Bibles. Um, but I want you to pay attention to the shifts in tone that happen throughout this psalm. If you are grieving over your sin, if you're in a position of, what does this look like to take this to God? Psalm 51 is a great prayer to pray. It's a great place to start. So just imagine with me, this is David after realizing the gravity of everything that's going on. And he's, he's crying out to God over a week of praying and fasting. Psalm 51 says this. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions, and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me, yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in the secret place. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors your way, your ways, so that sinners will turn back to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed. O oh God, you who are God, my Savior, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Open my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O oh God, is a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart you, God, will not despise. 
May it please you to prosper Zion, to build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in the sacrifices of the righteous. And burnt offerings offered whole, then bulls will be offered on your altar. So do you, do you notice how David's prayer shifts in tone? It shifts from, from grieving over his sin, his heart being broken over what he has done, to clinging to God's grace and mercy and then to rejoicing and worshiping God through all of it because he knows that God is faithful. That while David's sin is great, it is, it is huge, God's grace is greater. Like, that is what he clings to. It is the only way that he can experience full repentance. Right? The only way that we can experience this picture is if Psalm 51 is the normal pattern of our life. For some of us in the room or some of us listening, maybe the, the reason that we've not experienced the presence and peace of Jesus in our life is because we've never walked in repentance. Maybe, maybe you have been a, a, a Christian in the vague sense or a cultural Christian, as we've called it. You know some theological principles, but it's really abstract. You've never really owned it. And because of that, you've, you've never fully experienced real peace in your life and the forgiveness that comes from, from this repentance. But if you ever really want to own your sin, you need to take it to God, who offers you peace, who offers you mercy. And David, in this story, the man after God's own heart, he could have easily become just another wicked king, right? Just like Saul, if Nathan hadn't shown up, if Nathan hadn't called him to repentance. But he does repent. He does turn his his heart back to God. And God keeps David on, on the throne for the rest of David's life, we read. Now, there, there would be consequences, absolutely. But, but God did not hang David's sin over his head anymore. Right? David was, was forgiven, and the same goes for us. When, when we repent, when we turn to God through the grace gift of Jesus, right? God doesn't just focus on our sin anymore, and neither should you, right? And instead, God looks at us and he sees the righteousness of his son, Jesus, right? The true and better king interceding on our behalf. That's what he sees. So I want, us to, I want us to pray together as we end today. Um, yeah, God, we, uh, first and foremost, just want to thank you just for your, uh, for your grace and love towards us. 
um, and the examples that we get to see in Scripture um, of the way that you have pursued people and the way that you have been faithful and displaying that you are trustworthy and in, in the midst of, of the reality of, of sin and in the, the gravity of all of it. You, you don't ignore the gravity of sin, um, but you, you provided a way for us in turning from our sin and looking to you um, through your son Jesus paying the cost. You offered a way for us to, to be reconciled with you. And we know apart from you that none of that is possible. We thank you for that, for that reality and for the examples that, that we can see and thank you that you have called your followers to, to be messengers of that truth to one another and to the world. Um, to be messengers of the reality that you have paid the ultimate price for sin. That you have, that you have paid the cost in full and that when we turn to you, when we, when we turn our lives towards you and away from, from any of our, our sinfulness and our sinful desires over and over again, that you are there and that you are faithful and you are constant. We thank you that you have called us all to that as, as your followers um, so that we can be that for others, but also so that we all have access to that reality and that truth day after day, that we can be reminded of the beauty of the beauty of what you've done in the in the face of the tragedy of sin. And I just pray that for for everyone here uh, today that, that you would just remind all of us of both the gravity of our sin, but also the depth of your grace and your love and the lengths that you went to so that we could be reconciled to you. And I just pray that, that your spirit would be stirring in all of us today, whether it's for the thousandth time or the first time, that we would be able to acknowledge our, our brokenness, but rejoice in your faithfulness as we cling to the hope that you've given us. We thank you so much. In Jesus' name we pray.